0: To be or not to be, that That is is the
1: question. question. Grief is sort of the other side of love in a way. Our connection with people and our love for people in our lives is often made up of a large part of a fear of their loss or a fear of their absence.
2: In this episode of the podcast, we talk to people who found meaning and a sense of shared experience in Hamlet's famous soliloquy at the most difficult times of their lives.
3: It was really the first time that I had seen anything, any work of literature, wrestle so directly with mental illness. To feel that you are seeing yourself reflected back is incredibly, incredibly powerful.
4: All of a sudden, Shakespeare sees me and puts into words what I'm going through I feel seen and known and comforted by Hamlet's words, by Shakespeare's
5: words, the text was immeasurably supportive to me. Shakespeare gives us a pre sort of medicalized language for suffering.
2: We also talked to award-winning novelist Maggie O'Farrell who thinks the uncanny power of the play may be emotionally rooted in the grief of Shakespeare himself, who wrote Hamlet a few years after the death of his own son.
1: It's impossible not to have grieved deeply and profoundly for the loss of a child. And I think you only have to look at the play with that lens to realise that it's underpinned by an enormous cavern of grief. The play is a message from a father in one realm to a son in another.
5: my sister Emily she was called Emily Clark she was 34 when she died and i was 32 and we're coming up to the 15th anniversary of her death
2: this is Lucy Clark a devotee of english literature lucy was qualifying to become a teacher when her elder sister emily who'd suffered great difficulties all her life committed suicide
5: she died in december 2006 and that was the end of my first teaching term so that same term that I became a teacher, I formerly. I um, also uh, became a, a griever. in the the last years of her life she worked as a cooperative member in a cooperative bookshop in Bristol but she was also a primary school teacher and a linguist and a traveller and her life was always challenging from infancy so she was always dogged by difficulty inhabiting this world but she was also always very funny very bright very engaged in life she was extremely attractive to others but not to herself and these tensions that uh, that pushed and pulled her the shadowy um difficulty of being got the better of her in the end but it wasn't the defining quality of her even though she was always challenged i guess by other slings and arrows She'd made a suicide attempt in the July before. She was, I mean, in hindsight, highly traumatised by the first attempt. She was effectively, um, no doubt, she had PTSD, but nobody discusses that or certainly then discuss that. So she was living in this kind of hinterland um, in the last six months of her life where she'd made this violent attempt. She was wounded. She was scarred by what she'd done to herself, very physically scarred as well as emotionally scarred. So she had all this trauma of trying to kind of come to terms with what she'd done, she retreated completely from the world and from friendships and from from
2: life. In the immediate aftermath of her sister's death, Lucy found herself teaching her class Hamlet and the famous soliloquy. I was
5: traumatically bereaved and with that comes all sorts of felt experiences that were kind of swirling around for me and my family. And then I taught Hamlet for that year and probably a couple of years afterwards as well in the sort of shadow and the light of that experience. The text was immeasurably supportive to me. To be able to read that play, teach that play, read this speech and begin to articulate types of suffering and types of very human difficulty.
2: Through the speech, Lucy was able to gain an insight into the suffering which her sister must have gone through
5: of course to me that's what this speech is wrestling with you know he's he's right there in the heart of that desperation and that questioning and wa- and wondering which which way to go and of course i um i sort of patterned that onto the felt experience of my sister and and wondered therefore um about that moment and that decision moment of hers as compared to his where he he takes a different route this speech it gave language to that which she never really could express the depths of her suffering. The she was she found it extremely difficult to articulate verbally. You know, the phrasing about slings and arrows, um, and the heartache and the thousand natural shocks, you know, these the the quality of that language gave me a way in her in her absence to start to comprehend the nature of what those natural shocks were, those pains were there comes a point when you have had so many really awful days and that you know heartache is so profound that living was just too much by that point point. and that's pretty that's a pretty massive thing to get your head around god who, who am i who would any one of us be to say yeah you've got to continue to endure that and i think that that's what the speech is so brilliant at is because it's it's asking you know the ultimate question of whether it's easier to stay alive or to be dead and later on, perhaps three, four, five years later, I experienced feelings not quite suicidal, but certainly the darkness and the depth that he touches on in that speech. And I I felt companionship with my sister there in that place. So there's something about this speech that for me facilitated a kind of empathy and compassion. I feel certainly that art gives us and literature gives us a better framework of understanding, a better language, if you like, than a lot of the kind of therapeutic or um, medical, psychological kind of words and languages of the last century. It gives us a pre-medicalized language for sorrow and suffering and darkness and challenge.
3: I've been suffering from PTSD, anxiety, panic disorder, depression, pretty much since childhood. And I think that it's really only within the past few years that I've managed to understand why books were such an integral part of the way that I managed that long before I ever went to talk therapy or to doctors or any kind of professional intervention.
2: This is Laura Clarke. It was a transformative experience watching Hamlet at the theatre which helped her to confront a series of mental health issues which she'd been dealing with for all of her life.
3: I think maybe 9 or 10 years ago um I went to see a production of Hamlet at the Old Vic. It was production of Hamlet with Michael Sheen as Hamlet. It was set in a psychiatric institution. And seeing it in that setting it reached me how profoundly sick Hamlet was and how so much of what he does You know, were he to walk into a therapist's office today, we would diagnose him with probably countless different illnesses. And kind of seeing him in that setting, wrestling with these questions, wrestling with to be or not to be, it was really the first time that I had seen anything, any work of literature wrestle so directly with mental illness. I remember being absolutely astounded this play somehow felt so relevant to my experience i stopped at the gift shop and they had a mini copy of hamlet i mean like tiny like as big as the palm of my hand i still carry it in my bag and i still have to be or not to be bookmarked and that directly came from that night watching Michael Sheen. I was in the first row. I still remember exactly where I was sitting. I remember <laughs> I got um, flecks of his spit on me. The whole thing felt so visceral. It it felt like that performance was coming from like absolute most fundamental part of, of his body. It was the moment that I knew that I was going to be talking about Hamlet and that performance for the rest of my life.
2: Laura now runs a fascinating website called The Book Habit which looks at literature and how it can help with mental health issues.
3: The kind of paralysis that depression is is very similar to the paralysis that that Hamlet ex- experiences and the paralysis at the very heart of of what this soliloquy is about whether it's it's grief or loneliness or anxiety or depression, heartbreak is a big one, whatever position you're coming from, to feel that you are seeing yourself reflected back is incredibly, incredibly powerful. This is someone who is so overpowered by grief and loss and fear, but You know, this is someone who is still incredibly three dimensional. There are still such vibrant glimmers of the person that Hamlet is. For me, you know, those moments where I've reached that breaking point where I feel like my illnesses are the only thing about me, they're all I can think about, they're what the world around me is responding to because everybody's worried about me. And, you know, like in those moments, to remember that I am still three dimensional, and in those dark moments, they may only feel like a glimmer. You know, it may feel like these other things about me are are so minor in comparison to the kind of dark shadow of of the thoughts that kind of get you to that to be or not to be moment. But they're still there, and if you can just cling onto that, I I really believe that you can come through it. My dad, he
4: was a wonderful source of unconditional love. He was a loving, kind man.
2: This is Erica Canclay. She was also an English teacher, and she was teaching Hamlet to her students when her father died, an event she'd feared all her life.
4: I'm feeling this kind of grief that I have anticipated and, and feared my whole life. You know, my whole life, I would think, my, I know my dad's going to die and this is going to be the worst thing. How am I going to handle it? How am I going to be ready for it? I was worried, you know, um, can I stand up in front of a group of students and talk about rotting bodies or dead fathers or, you know, life. I started teaching Hamlet and the play began to reveal so much more than I had ever seen before, because now I had a dead or a dying father and then I was seeing my own ghosts.
2: The same day her father passed away, Erica was teaching the To Be or Not To Be soliloquy.
4: This is a eternal peace that I'm sharing and passing on. This is the day to do that. I'm going to do it. And it was, it was wonderful. I had, you know maybe minutes of time where I didn't think about my dead dad. It, it enriched my experience of his death, but it also felt like I was hanging on to the podium for my dear life. I had done this a bunch, so I knew what I was doing. And yet I would come across passages like this one and just get this incredible wave of emotion, all of a sudden Shakespeare sees me and puts into words what I'm going through in a way that I'm just learning right now and I wouldn't have even been able to articulate it. I feel not alone. I feel seen and known and comforted by Hamlet's words, by Shakespeare's words, that to me taps into the spiritual nature of the work. Why are we here? What is the point? What is right action? That if, if we think about that a lot, we might do things in our life and make changes or see our life really differently.
2: Over the next few years, Erica wrote a beautiful memoir about her experiences called Teaching Hamlet As My Father Died.
4: Actually, the editor that I worked with, she said to me that when your first parent dies is when you first start planning your own death, or at least looking at it, facing the fact that it's going to happen. That... Certainly resonated with me, and how I ended up using the play of Hamlet to explore what it meant for me to have my dad go into the cold, cold ground.
2: So, how is it that Hamlet has such a power and resonance for people who are in the most difficult of circumstances? How did Shakespeare create such a profoundly tragic play on a scale and depth he'd never previously attempted? We have no way of knowing, of course. But some biographers have speculated that Hamlet may in part have been Shakespeare's way of dealing with his own sense of grief and loss, because he was writing the play a few years after the death of his own son, a child who bore the name of Hamnet, which in those days was effectively the same name as Hamlet. Maggie O'Farrell has written an award-winning novel called Hamnet, which imaginatively re-explores this story, a story she'd been thinking about for many years.
1: I studied the play Hamlet for my Scottish hires and then my teacher mentioned in passing that Shakespeare had had a son who was called Hamnet and he had died aged 11 about four years um, before we think that the play Hamlet was written and it just really struck me you know the symmetry of these names and I have a really strong memory of looking down at the school issue cover of the Arden Shakespeare Hamlet and just putting my finger over the L and taking it off again thinking well it's the same name you know what does that mean? Because, of course, you know, they are the same name in Elizabethan times. Spelling was a lot less stable and the the names Hamnet and Hamlet are completely interchangeable in parish records. The engine behind the book for me was wanting to dignify and uh, amplify the very short life and the death of this boy who I think has been completely overlooked by scholarship and history. Um, and so the purpose behind the book was to say to people, you know, this child was significant. He was grieved. Without him, we wouldn't have Hamlet. We probably wouldn't have Twelfth Night. You know, we cannot overstate how important he was. Um, and I feel that, you know, I want to bring him right up from this literary footnote at the bottom of the page to, to put him sort of centre of the action. So I, I knew that in order to do this, his death had to feel awful. You know, as readers and as a as a writer, we had to share in the very profound and terrible grief of his parents it's impossible not to have grieved deeply and profoundly for the loss of a child and I think you only have to look at the play with that lens to realise that it's underpinned by an enormous cavern of grief and it's always felt to me ever since my teacher told me about the son that the play is a, a message from a father in one realm to a son in another
2: Shakespeare's loss may have been reflected in other plays he wrote, as his son Hamlet was twin brother to Judith Shakespeare, who lived a long life and died at the age of 77.
1: Well, particularly boy and girl twins are, of course, a repeating motif in Shakespeare's work. Um, And when you consider Twelfth Night, you know, through that lens, which of course was um, the Globe Theatre anyway, dates it, the play after he wrote after Hamlet. Um, you know, which is of course, is about boy and girl twins who each believe the other is dead, they're separated and they believe the other is dead. and then at the end, of course, they are reunited, and there's a just a heartbreaking scene where they see each other again. and it's so you know, if you think about his own boy and girl twins, who, of course were separated by death and were not reunited, it's particularly heartbreaking, and one of the things I found out when I was researching the novel is that the opening night for Twelfth Night at the Globe Theatre of the original production was on what would have been the twins' birthday.
2: In her novel, Maggie envisages Shakespeare imaginatively swapping places with his lost son, embracing death so his son can live.
1: I had read an, a story, perhaps apocryphal, that Shakespeare himself took the role of a ghost in the first production of Hamlet at the Globe Theatre. So if you imagine Shakespeare, the man who writes this story, who has inscribed his son's name on his manuscript over and over again, who has made a bargain and agreed to hear his son's name spoken in every single rehearsal and every single production that he is involved in. And he himself will speak that name out to thousands of people in the audience who have no idea of its enormous significance to him as a, as, a, as a human and as a father. He is, in that sense, making a sort of artistic bargain and saying... I will take his death, let me take it and my son can live. You know, as anyone who's had children will know, if your child is suffering, your overriding impulse at that moment is to want to exchange yourself for them. You want to take the suffering, you want to make some kind of weird bargain with whatever uh, power you believe in and say, you know, I'll have the suffering, give it to me. Let me take this uh, illness and I'll have it instead of them. Please just spare my child and I will have it. It just seems to me that the play is a mechanism by which Shakespeare is allowing himself to make the bargain that all parents would want to make when, if your child suffers or, God forbid, passes away, you know, you'd know, you say, take me instead, I will die, I will have this suffering, but please let my child, please spare my child. And his the play, in its sense, can be seen as Shakespeare's wish fulfilment of this, because I believe, anyway, that Hamlet is Shakespeare's answer or refutation or resistance in a sense to what I see as the main drama of his life which happened off stage and that's the death of his son and I think I was trying to explore the link between life and art Um, you know why we why we need to make it how we make it you know why we need to see it or watch it or um, listen to it and I think in a sense you know art is a is a in then whatever medium or form it takes is a refutation to death, isn't it? It's asserting our life, it's asserting our survival.
2: Dr. Christy Carlson,
6: Shakespeare was writing it uh, after uh, losing his own son, and so the profound sense of wanting to go back, wanting to retreat to a place where you know and to say this is not fair, this is this is unkind i I don't know how to deal with this is something that I think once you've started to lose people who are close to you, you you understand a lot better. So that huge, uh, I think it, it will always have an appeal to anyone who's lost somebody, um, whether it's you know uh, a mother, father, brother, son. The play is, is very much grounded in grief, and that's why Hamlet just cannot think about anything else. And so I think, yeah, there's something very profoundly um, affecting about that when you see somebody going through that process on stage.
2: In writing Hamlet, Shakespeare may also have been thinking of his own father, who died in September 1601, probably not long after the first performance of the play. There are possible links between Shakespeare's relationship with his father and the way the story plays out on stage in Hamlet. Director Dominic Dromgoole. No-one quite knows. I mean, I think that, you know... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of potential resonance. If, as we thought, or as we... think is possible he played the ghost you know and if his father was dying and or dead you know there's enough in that to keep a bunch of psychotherapists in uh, clenched and fascinated silence for a long time you know it's rich and it's full of resonance every play of shakespeare's in some way relates back to his own biography and to himself and to you know his obsessions and the structure of his family i mean he was a you know like all artists he was a regurgitator and sort of sublimator of his own passions and his own obsessions. Professor Emma Smith believes that much of the power of Hamlet derives from a shared sense of loss which late Elizabethan society felt in the wake of the religious reformation and the abolition of the old forms of ritual grief and burial of the dead.
0: One of the things that's been really um, interesting about some recent work on Hamlet has been the, the, the connection with Shakespeare's uh, dead son Hamlet and the very, very suggestive overlap in the names. And, and But in a way, I think Hamlet, the play resonates not because it draws on private or personal grief, but because it somehow channels a broader public mourning for a time that has gone and for the rituals of the past and the comforts of the past um, that, you know, we we sometimes tell the story of the Reformation. Well, we always, I think, more or less always tell the story of the Reformation from the point of view of the winners or from the point of view that the the Catholic church was was, um, corrupt or, you know, was full of fat, uh, lascivious friars and, you know, needed to be, needed to be reformed. And we tell it from that point of view. But I think thinking a, a bit more along the, the sort of bare ruined choirs that Shakespeare writes about elsewhere, a landscape devastated because the monasteries have been sort of, you know, sort of pulled down and their stones used for other things, and a and a sort of ritual landscape of how you mark deaths, how you mark marriages, how you think about the afterlife, how you think about the connection between the generations. That's all been disrupted. And I think there is a way that Hamlet is a very retrospective nostalgic play grieving for a a, a kind of rupture in 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 the communal life of Shakespeare's time.
2: Christy Carlson thinks this sense of communal loss will lend the play new meaning in the age of Covid.
6: There are, are many 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 people who are grieving at the moment and I think this play will have a resurgence once once we're all unlocked down. Once we open Uh, the theatres again they are going to be full and people will be desperate for that kind of sense of communion but actually you know we've done everything we could with zoom and phone and everything else chat and um, you know um, social media it doesn't replace being there and i think that's what people are really going to want when all this is over
2: this podcast was started in the depths of the coronavirus lockdown And the contributors all agreed to take part because they wanted to raise awareness for theatres and for actors at a time of crisis due to pandemic, to rolling lockdowns and social distancing. If you want to help, theatres like The Globe have donation pages you can visit, and special fundraisers have been set up during lockdown. If you visit the podcast website, you can find some links. Finally, special thanks go to Emma Fielding and Simon Paisley-Day, who recorded versions of the speech at home during lockdown. And thanks, too, to Chris Dyer, Paul Sem, and Hannah Fiori. Soft you now,
1: the fair Ophelia.
2: Nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered.